pull out your Bibles. We're in the book of Psalms tonight. And while you guys are turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. And Lord, for each one of us, we might be in a different spot. Some of us are, are, are in the highs. Some of us are in the lows. Some of us are in the battle. Some of us have just won a victory. Um, Lord, some of us have yet to come to that battle. But all of us come before you, dependent upon you. We call upon you, Father God. We ask that you would speak to us from this psalm, that you would speak to us about praising you for all of our victories, for all of the victories in the King. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if you remember from last week, if you, were, if you were here last week, we talked about in God we trust. It's the motto that's on our money. It's everywhere, where, wherever we're spending our money and whatnot, it, it, it's there for us. And, it, and it's the idea that we're not trusting in that money. We trust in God to provide all of it. And we looked at what it looks like to actually trust God as we face our battles And now as we turn to Psalm 21, this evening we come to the sister psalm of Psalm 20. Psalm 20 and 21 are thought to be one cohesive unit. Psalm 20 was praying to God for the battle yet to be fought. And Psalm 21 is written after the king's victory. So this psalm is a psalm of David again. It's a royal psalm because it's about the the King David and it's also addressed to the choir director or the chief musician who we know by now is God himself. And so it relishes in the victory of the king while properly acknowledging God for it. And that's the main point is in order to maintain consistency for our trust in God for the battle that is yet to be fought, we must also acknowledge God for the victory now experienced. If you cannot acknowledge him for the victory, we will not trust him for the future victory. David trusted in God. He acknowledged God for the victory that was won. And David was also able to anticipate and trust for future victory by the power and strength of God. And we can also, but we first must praise God for the king's victory. And this psalm can be looked at in three different ways. Number one, we can look at it historically, the way that it played out in David's life, and we're going to do that. Number two, this psalm is prophetic. It speaks of one greater than David. It speaks of the son of David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the true king of kings. And we can also look at it practically and personally as it relates to you and I, for we are declared in the New Testament by the apostle Peter that we are a royal priesthood. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So let's learn to praise God for the king's victory and deliverance. Starting in verse 1, David writes, he says, Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. How greatly he rejoices in your victory. You've given him his heart's desire and have not denied the request of his lips. Salah. 
For you meet him with rich blessing. You place a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your victory. You confer majesty and splendor on him. You give him blessings forever. You cheer him with joy in your presence. For the king relies on the Lord. Through the faithful love of the Most High, he is not shaken. Your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. You will make them burn like a fiery furnace when you appear. The Lord will engulf them in his wrath and the fire will devour them. You will wipe their progeny from the earth and their offspring from the human race. Though they intended to harm you and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. Instead, you will put them to flight when you're ready, when you ready your bowstrings to shoot at them. Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. First thing that we need to understand when, when we're going to praise God for the king's victory, we need to remember that there is joy in God's strength. And that's what, the song, that's what David writes, the first two verses. He says, Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. He says, how greatly he rejoices in your victory. You've given him his heart's desire and have not denied the request of his lips, Selah. We find four elements introduced in this call to praise. As we find joy in God's strength, there's four elements to that. Number one, there is rejoicing. The first element, it's the concept of rejoicing. David states, the king finds joy. And then he repeats it in a different way. He says he greatly rejoices. Both those words, they're two different words in Hebrew, but they're synonymous in meaning. They have a straightforward meaning. It means joy, rejoicing, gladness. When this is present in the call to praise, you can anticipate that this psalm is a psalm of joy. It will lift your hearts and it should propel you into a period of great rejoicing and praising. The second element that we find here is there is a strong victory. Here, this element reveals the reason for rejoicing, and it's God's strong victory. You see, David declares that he, the king, finds joy in your God's strength, and greatly he rejoices in your God's victory. Now, these two words and concepts, strength and victory, they are parallel in this verse. It means that the strength in which David finds joy is the same thing as the victory in which David greatly rejoices. You bring them together and we can see what David is talking about. David is talking about a strong victory, a powerful victory that God has provided, which in turn causes David to rejoice. We know that victory in David's life historically is the victory from the battle for which he prayed for victory. We know that that was a strong victory. The other elements that we find are the king. The one doing the rejoicing has to be noted. That person is the king. 
King David. He's God's chosen. He's God's anointed king to rule the nation of Israel. David knew of God's strong victory, and we know it from the historical records we have from the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And the nature of the victory in which David experienced, it comes in two forms. Number one, David experienced real physical victory, a victory in battle that was fought and won. He knew what it was to have physical deliverance from the Lord. But David also experienced a victory that was not physical, but was supernatural and spiritual. This victory was not over enemies of the body, but this was over the enemies of the soul and spirit of man. David knew what it was to have his sins forgiven, to have his sins covered, to have his sins not imputed, not accounted, not put upon him. In Psalm 32, verse 1, it says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Have you ever had a phone call from someone and you just had a conversation about that someone or whatever and and you're like, oh no, they heard what I said. They're calling me to call me out on it. They're asking me about it. Have you ever had that, that fear built up because you have a guilty conscience about what was said? I used to, I used to have n- nightmares where I, I, there was some unconfessed sin in my life, but it was, it, it was as terrible as something like killing somebody. I used to have a, a dream that I was wanted for killing somebody. And it used to, it, I remember having that, that turmoil in my heart as I was going through it because I had a guilty conscience and, and when I woke up and it wasn't that and I was just like, oh, that's what it is to not have your sins imputed to you when your sins are covered and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Joy found in such a victory was known to David. It's a victory over sin And for us to come and see this psalm in this light is very much indeed proper and we also have to come and we have to acknowledge that much of what David is praising God for is the first kind of victory. He's praising God for that physical victory. But as Christians today, we have to recognize that we may not be at war. We may be in a time of peace, kind of. There's that war that's brewing under the surface, right? There's those tensions amongst the nations. But we, we have to recognize that we have enemies. We have enemies, both physical and spiritual. The worst enemies that we have, they are not flesh and blood. They are not other nations. They are not nations that hate us. Our worst enemies are those that which are invisible because they are spiritual. But we can rejoice as David did in God's powerful, strong victory that we have today. In the fourth element, we would be remiss if we did not talk about the Lord being present in the praises of David's psalm here. We would be remiss to neglect. He is the one who is strong. He is the one who gives the victory over David's and even our own enemies. It's not horses. It's not chariots. It's not human rulers who provide the victory for which we and David should be rejoicing and praising over. It is the Lord, the God of Israel. 
You see, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he alone is the one and only one who provides the complete and total victory for his people. So to him alone goes our praise and our rejoicing. Rejoicing in the way that the Lord has revealed his strength and given us the victory. And as I think about rejoicing, I'm always brought back to understanding it this way. What passion we see displayed here in victory, which challenges me. Why it is that we find it so easy to cheer and celebrate insignificant victories. Scores in a game. Games where our team wins. Goals that we meet in life, achievements that we accomplish in life. We want to celebrate all these things and and it's okay to celebrate those things. But why do we celebrate it more than we do for the victories and the victory of our great God and King? Why do we find it easier to celebrate a touchdown than we do our own salvation? And so with these four elements in mind, we come to see that the joy is in the Lord's strength. David didn't glory in his own strength. He's won many battles. Remember, he's the one at 12 years old, killed Goliath. But he didn't glory in his own strength. He didn't say, wow, I'm so much more grown up now. I'm I'm a man now, and now I can fight my own battles. And he he never did that. What we're going to know, and what we may notice here and throughout the rest of this psalm, Notice how David talks about himself. He refers to himself in the third person. And this was before there was a thing for that on social media and whatnot where you talk about yourself in the third person. David did that back then. You didn't talk about yourself in the third person back then because that would, um, it, it signifies humility. And he was talking about himself in the third person, and it may seem peculiar. I think David's intent was to have the people, when they sang this song, not to praise David for the victories. He, he left it as the king so that it would be more anonymous. They, they knew at that time that it was King David, but later on, this psalm applies also, as we're going to see, to Jesus Christ, the king. then he says that you have given him his heart's desire. David's acknowledging that David desired that victory in his heart. And from his heart, he prayed and through prayer, God answered and gave the victory, the very desire of his heart. And Psalm 34, seven says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. If you delight in the Lord, he will give you your heart's desires. And then he says, you've not denied the request of his lips. You see, God has given the victory and responded to David's prayer. Notice that David's strong victory came not only because he desired it in his heart, but that he spoke his request in prayer to the Lord. There's a special place that answered prayer is to have in our lives as believers. Every one of us in Christ should know and should experience the thrill of frequent and wonderful answers for our prayers. If you're here tonight and you heard that and you say, well, I don't. And I haven't experienced that. There's a few things to consider and evaluate. Perhaps it's because you're prayerless. Perhaps it's because you pray amiss. 
Or worse yet, perhaps your prayers are currently hindered. You see, the apostle James in James chapter four, verse two says, you desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war, but you do not have because you do not ask. He says, or you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now, that's what it means to be prayerless and that's what it means to ask amiss. Our prayers can be hindered in many different ways. And here's just a few ways and I'll I'll give you the, the way and I'll give you a scripture reference. Your prayers can be hindered by not abiding. John 15, 7. Your prayers can be hindered by unbelief. Matthew 17, 20 to 21. Your prayers can be hindered when not joined with fasting. Matthew 17, 21. Your prayers can be hindered by marital issues. 1 Peter 3, 7. Again, by not asking, James 4, 2. By asking amiss, James 4, 3. Your prayers can be hindered through disobedience. 1 John three twenty two. Your prayers can be hindered by not praying according to God's will. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Your prayers can be hindered by unconfessed sin in your life. James 5, 16. Your prayers can be hindered by lack of Bible reading and Bible teaching. Proverbs 28, 9. And the last one, your prayers can be hindered because of misplaced faith. Matthew 6, 7. And I give you that list, not not as a checklist, like if you do all those things, then God owes you. Because we cannot earn and we cannot merit God's response for our prayers. But most definitely we see that we can hinder our prayers being answered. And then we come to that word that we're familiar with now in the Psalms, Salah, which if you remember correctly, it means to pause. It's it's a, a meditative pause. And using this opportunity to thank God for the strength of victory that he has shown in our own individual lives for the glorious ways in which he's already answered many of our prayers. To stop, pause, and think that God is a great and loving God, and there's much joy and rejoicing to be had in him and his strong victory. And as David continues on, he begins praising for past victories. 
verses three through seven, he says, for you meet him with rich blessings. You place the crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your victory. You confer majesty and splendor on him. You give him blessings forever and you cheer him with joy in your presence for the king relies on the Lord through the faithful love of the most high. He is not shaken. Some of the past victories that David is acknowledging here is that the Lord met with rich blessing. How many of us can attest to that victory in our life? That the Lord has met us with rich blessing. You see, David praises the Lord for meeting him with rich blessing. He's basically saying, the goodness of God came to meet me. And David is describing that it's more God who met him than David sought or chased. And if we're honest in our own life, that's true. God met us more so than we sought or chased God. And God brought the blessing to him as opposed to David seeking it. It reminds me so much of the story of the prodigal son, does it not? That the father ran to meet his son. Perhaps it's not quite as understood at the time in David's life, especially in the years between anointing as king and the crowning as king. There was many years in between there. And David was yet crowned, and he was crowned with the nation, with the crown for the nation of Israel, and he was crowned with the crown of victory. As I said, God's goodness and grace meets us in life all the time. It's found in the principal truth that he loved us before we ever loved him. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. God provides the way of salvation. Crowning us with the crown of eternal life and with the crown of righteousness. You see, God made a way when there was no way, making the way accessible to us at all, for all. Romans 5.8, it says, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We may forget that God met us with rich blessing. He didn't come to us and say, hey, I have this way, but you have to do this. And when God met us, he said, hey, I'm here and I want you to know what I've already done for you. James 1.12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. He will crown you with the crown of life because you loved him. But remember, you love him because he first loved you. Paul tells us Second 2 Timothy 4.8, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And you say, well, that's Paul. What does he say? He says, not only to me, but to all those who've loved his appearing. 
for all who await for the glorious appearing of our great God and King, Jesus, when he comes back, he brings with him our crowns of righteousness. God met us with the rich blessing in this. Not only did he save us, not only did he love us, not only did he save us, not only does he crown us with crowns, but God has prepared the way and God has prepared the ground upon which we will work before he ever gets here. For someone who grew up knowing that they weren't planned as a child, my, my parents didn't have this great plan of, oh, we're going to have a child and this is who it's going to be. I was a surprise. And as you grow up knowing that you were a surprise, when you go to school and they teach you the secular version of creation, which is not creation, but yet an accident, a spill that causes life to just dramatically appear out of nowhere, you begin to believe that life is purposeless, that you're not here for any reason. And if you're not here for any reason, why are you here at all? But one of the things that gripped my heart so tightly and put me on the path with the Lord was Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You know what that says? There was forethought in God's mind for each one of us. We are here because he planned for us, not because we're some accident. And he planned for us in such detail that he knows what you and I like. He knows what you and I are, are gifted in. He gifts us in, in that even more, and he prepares works for us. Our God is so much like this. Check this out. He did all the work of salvation for us and gives it to us. Then he calls us to works which he prepared specifically for us. And on top of that, he gives us his own spirit to empower us, to enable us to do those works. And at the end of time, when we stand before Christ in the works that we've done for him, he gives us credit for doing the work that he did all the work for. That is our great God and King who met us with rich blessing. past victories. He's given us eternal life. David in Psalm 20 asked the Lord to give him more days and not let that be the day of his defeat, the end of his life. Clearly he's writing Psalm 21. That means the Lord has given him more days in his life, right? He gave him the victory in the sense that he lengthened his days as king. And God is recognized as having been the one to give it to him. In relation to David, though, it speaks of, it, it, he gave him a long life, right? He, he wasn't a king who was defeated in his young age and, and, and killed physically as king. At the time, it's a sense of hyperbole for David himself. It's a, it's a massive exaggeration. And, and it's more in relation to his dynasty, his family line in the royal king, kingly line as a promise to establish his throne forever. Literally, that promise is made true in the case of the ultimate king, the Messiah. You see, the Messiah's kingdom is King David's dynasty in that the Messiah is of the lineage of David. The throne is eternal in that once the Messiah assumes the throne and his kingdom, it will be established forever and ever. It will have no end. 
And also, it speaks of eternal life in this. That the Messiah, the King of Kings, whom they slain, rose again and lives today. He is resurrected, and as Paul calls him, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Not, not because he had to be resurrected necessarily, not because he had to die for us, but he died and was resurrected to show us that he is God over life and death. And to show that in him, we too will be raised from death to life eternal. And all who are in him have eternal life. past victories, his faithful love. The king's glory is great because of the victory from the Lord, right? People, people praised King David, but it's because God's favor was upon David and he was victorious. The majesty and the splendor that was conferred upon him come from God. And that's where true and lasting glory can only come from. It only comes from God himself. David found joy in the presence of the Lord. He found his joy in the presence of the Lord. And he saw it to be the greatest blessing and his deepest desire. He was more thrilled with that than he ever was with the crown of royalty or even any victory that he had. As David goes on to write other Psalms in Psalm 27.1, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? couple of verses down, he says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. One thing. What's the one thing that you want? Psalm 84 This is the song uh, from the sons of Korah. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. And then verses down in verse 10, it says, better a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. It says the doorway of my God's house is better than the shelters of anywhere else. Now, if you underline in your Bible, if you take notes in your Bible, make some sort of indication to make verse seven pop out to you because verse seven is the central verse to the whole Psalm of Psalm 21. It says the king relies on the Lord through the faithful love of the most high. He is not shaken. You see, the king has faith and trusts in that faithful love, that unfailing love. In the Hebrew, it is this beautiful word, chesed. It's a love that is strong to overcome all. It is a love that is strong to never fail. In this faithful and unfailing love, the king knew he was secure and would not be made to move or be shaken. 
Now, this is where we turn everything, because all of these things, they're certainly true of King David. We may perhaps see and understand that they're more so true of David's greater son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, known as the son of David. Each line of verse three through seven can be applied to Jesus in victory of his great work on the cross. You see, Jesus was victorious and, and, and he was met with rich blessing when he ascended to heaven after he was resurrected. Jesus wore the crown of thorns, but now he wears the crown of glory as the king of kings, the glorious conqueror, and his crown is pure gold. You see, Jesus asked life of the Father. And God's Holy One was delivered from death, delivered from the pits of Sheol, was delivered from ever seeing corruption. And Jesus gloried in the victory that God had given him over sin and over death. Jesus finds joy in the presence of the Father. Understand that because it brings out the agony that was experienced on the cross. When we understand that in a sense, God's presence was turned away from Jesus on the cross. That's what we're gonna look at for Good Friday is the next Psalm in which it was quoted by Jesus on the cross in that moment when God turned because all of sin was placed upon Jesus. Spurgeon says it this way about, he says, Napoleon crowned himself. Jehovah crowned the Lord Jesus. The empire of one melted in an hour, but the other has abiding dominion. Isaiah 53, the chapter of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But in the chesed, the faithful love of the father, he was a man who knew what it was to be blessed forever and cheered with joy in the presence of the father. And as we consider that victory in the king, our true king, David and us should be anticipating future victory. In verse eight, it says, your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. You will make them burn like a fiery furnace when you appear and the Lord will engulf them in his wrath and fire will devour them. You will wipe their progeny from the earth and their offspring from the human race. Though they intend to harm you and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. Instead, you will put them to flight when you ready your bowstrings to shoot at them. This points to one thing. The king is coming in victory, not for victory. He comes in victory. David declares that God's hand will capture all of his enemies. His right hand will seize those who hate him. 
In other words, those who have set themselves up as enemies of God, they will not escape. They will not get away. They will be made to answer for all that they've done. Which is hard for us to understand because right now, there's a delay in that happening, right? Right now, we see the wicked of the world getting away with their wicked deeds. And we go, why God? How long, Lord? But it doesn't mean that they'll always get away with it. For the Lord has promised that there is coming a time for it to have. The Lord has demonstrated previously how quickly and how easily he can give the victory. In all the history with Israel, they went out to battle. March around this city and shout at the walls. They'll fall down. It's a weird strategy plan. But God showed, you follow what I do, it's going to happen for you. Go out and break all your lamps and shake your swords and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And the camp will become confused and they'll hand them over to you. That'll never work. How can a hundred men convince thousands to flee? Nothing in that changes. There's no one that is strong enough to take victory from the Lord. When the time comes, God will capture all of his enemies and he will seize them. And he's going to do it by his own hand. You know what that does for me? Relieves a whole lot of pressure. I don't have to do it. I don't have to defeat God's enemies for him. And certainly if I fail to defeat his enemies and whatnot, it's not like I failed the Lord and now his whole kingdom is going to crumble. I'm secure in his faithful love and I will not be shaken. David continues on and he declares that they're going to be made to burn like a fiery furnace when he appears. And this points to there being an appointed time, a time of judgment. Fire always speaks of judgment. And as we think of judgment, we do have to think of that place that nobody thinks is either real or we don't want to talk about because we know people that are headed there. And that is the real place of hell. And that is a real place of torment in which people who are judged as being against God and rebellion to God and not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will be sentenced there for all of eternity. There is no annihilation. The Bible t clearly talks about it in Revelation and every time Jesus talks about it, and did you know that Jesus talked about hell more than he ever did heaven? And there's a reason for that. We need to know it's real. We need to know that people are headed there and we need to keep people from going there by sharing the love of Christ, the victory that the king has already given them. But there is an appointed time. There is appointed judgment. Right now, we are in that period of grace for the Lord to have victory in the cross and in the lives of those who are overtaken by their sin. But there's coming a set time in which the Lord will unleash his wrath in a day of vengeance. And that's what he said. Engulfed in his wrath, the people will be devoured by fire. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
He says, give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with a flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It says specifically right there who's, who it's against. And we're faced with this truth. Those who despise his victory of grace will find themselves left to face defeat at his wrath. We're in that time period of his grace right now. We can find victory in his grace or we can despise it and be defeated in his wrath in that time to come. The king is coming in victory and this is evil will be wiped out. I long for this day. As I look around and I see the world as it is and I read about the world that God created and, and, and I know that what he created is not what we're living in and, and he meant it for so much more and that he promises to restore it back to what it should have been. I long for that day. You and I, every single one of us here tonight, we were born in a world corrupted and, and overrun by sin. But one day evil will be wiped out. Evil will be removed. We will be in a time period where we are saved from the presence of evil and of sin. The wicked will not survive. There's gonna be none left. He talks about it like this. He says their progeny will be wiped out. There will be no children of evil. All their offspring will be wiped out from the human race. God is not gonna bring any wicked people into the eternal state. There will be no evil in his kingdom. They intended to harm him with a wicked plan. You see, they intended to harm him. First, they gathered together with a wicked plan to crucify him on the cross. That didn't work because he arose in victory. Then they're going to assemble against him in, in, in this alliance of nations and somehow they think that their puny human kingdoms are going to stand against the king of glory. And what's going to happen is they're not, they're, not only are they not going to prevail, they're not even going to put up a fight. It says that he's going to come and he's going to speak words. And just by the words that he speaks, he will slay them. And just as they could not prevail in killing Jesus... And instead, they accomplished the plans of the Father and they ensured him the victory. David describes the enemies of God as helpless before the readied arrows and the taut bowstring of the bow in the judgment of God. They are intentional in their rebellion. You need to understand that the evil and wicked people, they're not like caught off guard. They're not there because they, they, they were innocently like, oh, I was just following the crowd and all of a sudden I've... They, they're intentional in their rebellion against God. They've rejected God. And they're guilty for it. There's none who are going to suffer judgment who are undeserving. We need to understand that. God is good. His judgment is perfect, righteous, and, and, and good. And there are none who are going to suffer judgment who are undeserving of it. Judgment will not come at the wrong time but judgment will come at the proper time. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. 
That day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. This is the Antichrist. He opposes and he exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Paul continues on. He says, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this. See, Paul warned him about it. He didn't want them to be ignorant. He says, and you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way and the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. I'm telling you, it's not even a fight. The victory of the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 9, it says, For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked person will be no more. Though you will look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. Psalmist continues on, he says, The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him, because he sees that his day is coming. You see, the, the wicked want to afflict us. The wicked want to gnash their teeth at us. But you know what the Lord is doing? He's laughing because their efforts are futile. Their day is coming. But while he laughs at them because their day is coming, he's coming to us and he's saying, don't worry. Just hold on a little bit longer. Endure until the end. He who endures until the end receive the crown of righteousness. The wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright. Their swords will enter their own hearts and their bows will be broken. And the psalmist closes his psalm by exalting the Lord of victory. Look at verse 13. Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. The Lord has strength in himself. He doesn't need to rely on another for strength or of help. In fact, the commentator, Adam Clark, he says this, exalt thyself, O Lord, thy creatures cannot exalt thee. We will sing praises, and we will praise your might. The songs of praise are bursting forth because God's power unleashed to deliver his own and vanquish his enemies. That's the song of the remnant of Israel. They're praying for the exaltation of the Messiah, acknowledging him in his victory as Lord of all. In that time in which the Lord puts away all evil, at that time, the nation of Israel will once again turn. And this time, instead of rejecting their Messiah, it says that they will accept their Messiah. The people who are not God's people will become God's people once again, as he promised, fulfilling his promise and his prophecy to them. Praise God for the blessings. Praise God for the victory, for the deliverance, and for the answered prayers. Praise God with an attitude of praise to the king, and it should always be found among the people of God from whom the victory has been given. 
answered prayer ought to be acknowledged with great praise. If we can jump up and shout and cheer and lose our voices at concerts and other things like that, when God answers our prayers, the Lord, the the living creator of all the universe, thinks it enough to answer our prayer, we should glorify him with all that we are. More so when the answered prayer brings us great victory. We should not praise God because we're surprised that God answered it all, but because God has answered graciously. David fought his battles. David won his victories. But if you, if you follow the life of David, he never won the victories and fought the battles to exalt himself. At every turn and every chance he got, he would magnify the name of the Lord. The victories in your life are opportunities that the Lord has given you to exalt and praise and glorify his name. That strong victory that David talked about has been given to the king. And it was written by David for David's victory, but he wrote it in the third person because ultimately God wanted us to recognize a victory that he has given to his king that would be forever and ever. The strong victory that we have in Christ Jesus, the son of David. You see, that victory was found in the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. And that perfect, sinless life of Jesus was murdered upon the cross. His innocent blood shed to pay the penalty for sin and to vanquish that threat of death that looms after each one of us but he would vanquish that threat from those who had put their faith and trust in Jesus. You see, Jesus asked God for life and God gave him life eternal, giving him power over life and death. That's why in John 11, 25, Jesus said to Mary when their brother Lazarus was dead, Jesus came and said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And as he asked her, the question remains for us today. Do we believe that? Do we trust and praise the Lord for that victory that Christ has given to us? Paul tells us he gave it to us, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 1.10, this has now been made more evident through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That strong victory is victory over death. Bringing us into life eternal. Our last breath here is followed by our very first breath in heaven. We need to rejoice and praise the Lord for his victory through his king. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening, Lord. And Father, as, as this psalm has um, just ignited that, that praise in our hearts, Father God, I pray that as we close with this last song, that this song would be sung with our hearts that want to exalt and praise thee for the victory that you have given us in our life, Father God, through your King, through your Son, Jesus. But Father, I also pray for those who do not yet know the victory and do not know the answered prayer in their life. Father, I pray that the desire for that victory in life, for that victory over death, for that victory over sin, that your spirit would speak to those hearts, directing them to find that victory through the gospel of Jesus. For that victory, that strong victory is found in this. That he died on the cross for our sins. And he died and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. Showing that his sacrifice for the penalty of sin was accepted. Resurrecting to teach us that there is a resurrected life. There is eternal life. And it's found when you place your faith and trust in the name of the only one who has defeated death, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to call upon his name. Help us to continue to look to him and call to him for that victory, Father. We look forward to to realizing that victory that you've already given us when at last we step over our last vanquished foe, when we step from this life into life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.